You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Tuesday and every Tuesday at 6 a.m. You can always count on the founder of the Four Horsemen, the enforcer himself, the Hall of Famer, Double A, Arn Anderson. Arn, how are you, man? I'm still buzzing from the weekend, buddy. Starcast was awesome. I saw guys I haven't seen in forever, including Jim Crockett. Man, it was uh, it was kind of surreal to walk in the back and, and see Jim Crockett sitting there, was it not? really was him and David together. It was brought back a lot of memories. That's for sure. And of course you can relive all those memories right now at starcast on fight.com. And if you haven't already, you can see Arn on another AEW pay-per-view. He was a judge this time for the, uh, co-main event, the world title match between Cody Rhodes and the champion, Le champion, Chris Jericho. And you're seated there with your old pal, Dean Malenko and an old foe, the great Muda. That had to be fun, huh? Well, you know, Muda didn't say much, but he <laughs> smiled a lot. So as long as he was smiling, I figured I was okay. Well, you got to see the action uh, up close and personal. What'd you think of that title bout between Cody and Jericho? Well, I thought it was a true title match. I think those guys took their time, went out, had a wrestling match, let the audience settle down because uh, they saw quite a bit of exciting dives and flips and flops and all kind of spectacular stuff. So for a title match, you got to turn around and reset the audience and start from ground zero and build it. And I think they did just that. Well, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed Starcast as well, but what we're here to talk about today is something a little older, but not much. This is probably the newest show I've ever talked about on a podcast survivor series 2014. This one went down November 23rd at the Scott Strait Center in St. Louis, Missouri. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, why are you covering a show from 2014? This is when Sting finally debuted in the WWE. And I thought, given all the time he spent with Jim Crockett promotions and WCW with Arn, this would be a noteworthy show for us. Uh, this show had a hundred thousand buys on pay-per-view. That's of course, excluding the WWE network views. The prior year had 177,000 buys, but at this point, Pay-per-view is no longer the new hip thing. It's all about the network. The rumor in innuendo, Arn, is that when the network was rolled out, a lot of guys were nervous 
Hey man, how's this going to affect our paydays? We've always gotten a bonus for pay-per-view buys. How are we going to be paid now that the network is the new way? Do you remember hearing a lot of that amongst the boys? That was the concern because you're talking guys that once a month and, and then that those days we were doing one, sometimes two pay-per-views in, in a month, sometimes three, three weeks apart, right? So these guys are looking at, you know, anywhere from twelve to possibly fifty thousand dollars for a payoff, anywhere in that range, depending on where you were on the card, and and it, you know, do that times twelve. It's a lot of money. We should mention that just a couple of weeks prior to this, or maybe three weeks to be exact, uh, October thirtieth was one of the most important days of the year for WWE business because they had to release all the information about how many people were actually subscribing. And they announced that as of September 30th, 731,359 network subscribers of which 702 were in the U S and 28,000 of the rest of the world. That's your subscription number. And they had said for a long time that the goal was going to be 2 million subscribers. And if they could ever get to there, boy, they'd just be printing money. And this is not exactly great news. So it does start to look like all of a sudden the company is going to be taking a loss. Uh, in fact, overall for the quarter, the company lost 5.9 million. And I know you, you were in meetings where a lot of this stuff was sort of discussed and glossed over, but as an agent, there's not really much that you can do to affect that number. So this is probably in one ear and out the other, and let's worry about tonight's show. Do I have that right? Well, a hundred percent. And that's, that's not on purpose. I mean, cause those are things that are going to affect your long-term job and uh you know the you want the company to be healthy and all those things but guy like me that's just you know it's going in one ear and out the under those those kind of numbers and you know are so foreign to me and where they actually come from and what can you believe and you know you're losing money here but you're making a, a fortune over there and it's uh it's a little confusing so i just you know as long as everybody was smiling and nobody was getting laid off or fired it's a good day. Let's talk about that though, because you know, the, the legend has it that when they started to clear house here and there to sort of cut costs. And we know that famously, eventually they would even cut pyro and things like that to sort of hit the number. They also had to add a whole bunch of staff to help with the network. How does, how was that sitting with, you know, some of the boys and some of the guys backstage when their friends are getting laid off, but we're adding extra staff and oh, by the way, our payoffs are down too, because we're not making the pay-per-view money. Was this really sort of, uh, leading to a lot of unhappiness uh, in the locker room as far as you know? Well, there were a lot of questions, you know, for, for guys, you know, I would sit around and just kind of do the math and we heard, you know, and these are rumors. I didn't go to Stanford and go down to the new building that they put together for the specifically to produce a network and count heads. But when you hear, you know, over a hundred people, you got to figure those people, everybody that works in Connecticut, in Stanford for that company, I would think the bottom salary would be, let's just say 40 grand. Let's just say that for the average. And you know, it's going to be a lot more than that times a hundred people. You start doing the math. That's a pretty good nut. They got to get pass before they start making a dime at nine ninety nine per prescription. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and I think a lot of the financial questions, you know, led to a lot of unrest and eventually that's all right size to hear guys now signing bigger contracts than ever before. Let's talk about, uh, some folks who are sort of coming and going behind the scenes in this era. Kevin Steen has become an indie sensation and really made a name for himself and companies like pro wrestling gorilla and ring of honor. He's going to be coming in here as Kevin Owens, which is a tribute to Owen Hart. I guess Kevin grew up a big Owen Hart fan to the point that he even named his son Owen. Uh, so this is a, a cool deal for him to actually be able to be Kevin Owens. And he worked out, uh, for triple H and they've taped some vignettes for his arrival at NXT. And the thought is that he'll be debuting at the live takeover show uh, on December 11th. Kevin Steen, of course, we know now is Kevin Owens and had a heck of a run when he first came in being put into a feud on the main roster with John Cena. I'm sure we'll talk about that another time, but Kevin Steen, you and I've never talked about, but I do feel like he's probably your type of wrestler. what did you think of Kevin Steen when you first saw his work? Well, you're going to have to talk to sit about Cena a little bit here because right away I saw that, uh, Kevin had some incredible skills, some that if you looked at him when he walked in the room, you would go, well, okay, nothing special. I think Kevin will tell you he's not a big physical specimen. He's not one of those guys that when he walks in the room, you drop whatever you got in your hands and go, Jesus Christ, who is that? But the guy is incredibly mobile. Even more than that, he's incredibly strong. And uh, the first big match he had was with Cena, and he muscled Cena around to the point where the biggest mistake that was made with Kevin Owens, and I don't give a shit what anybody says, when you put him in a match with a guy like John Cena, who is your face of the company, babyface, and he manhandles him like Owens did during that match, he's not a heel, and he's never going to be a heel. And from this point or that point on, he wasn't a heel because you can't go back and fix that. I mean, they did some stuff up on that top rope where Kevin was picking up John and standing on that unstable setting of, of being up on the top and did some stuff on the top, off the top that was just incredible. I couldn't even name it. I couldn't even explain it to you. But it looked like he was standing there with him in an upside-down cradle and jumped off the top, and it looked like it would have killed anybody. Plus, John hit his AA, patented, off the second turnbuckle, which has been a kill shot for every other opponent, no matter who it was, usually reserved for the canes of the world and the heavier hitters because it showcased John's strength being able to do it off the second rope, and it was higher impact, which took care of the guy who was, was wrestling. And uh, Kevin Owens kicked out of that too. So when it was all said and done, I voiced my opinion, and it was just another one of those days where, okay, you may be right, but uh, we wanted to give the guy a good shove in the ass right off the get-go. Well, you did. And he was never, ever an unlikable guy, even though he was French-Canadian and had all the tools and had the uh, the rap to be a, a top heel, can't fix it once you go there. And, and he went there with John, and that's what everybody remembers. Let's also talk about Alberto Del Rio. 
Uh, he's on his way out here. And uh, apparently there is a confidentiality agreement struck between himself and WWE regarding his non-compete clause. He's leaving here at just 37 years old. And part of the agreement is he's going to make no more negative remarks about WWE, notably about the subject of racial insensitivity of the top officers within the company. And in return, he's going to get some sort of a financial settlement that includes a non-compete clause being dropped. And he would even take to Twitter and do a joint statement with WWE saying, following my departure from WWE an understanding was reached with regards to my future booking opportunities. We wish each other well in our respective future endeavors. This is an interesting because for whatever reason, it does feel like this is, I don't know, another piece of the stop and start relationship with Alberto Del Rio and professional wrestling. Uh, he's had a couple of different runs here with the WWE. He had a stop off an impact. It doesn't feel like he's been long for this world really anywhere, but he is been successful everywhere he's went and he's a multi-generational wrestler. Uh, what, what's your take on Alberto Del Rio, the, the man behind the character? And, and why don't you think this was a good fit with WWE this time? Well, go, go back and watch the evolution of Alberto. And I had a lot of his matches. Alberto started off. I mean, handsome guy looks like a movie star. They invested getting the low rider for him and all the traps and all the bells and whistles. And, and they were pushing the guys to be their Hispanic star heel or babyface. If you know, you take him to Mexico, he's going to draw a lot of money for you. And in any other Spanish speaking country and the guy just continued to get better. He took guidance and the, the little things that he was a little weak on with his attack and his strikes and some of those things, when you would talk to him about it, because we all liked him, he was as easy as he could possibly be to do business with. He was great to talk to about psychology and mechanics and all those things. He listened and he applied and he wouldn't get mad at you or get frustrated or feel insulted. Because he knew we had his best interests, all the agents, in his uh, best interests. And he continued to get better. And the thing that really frustrated me is the last time when the incident happened and I wasn't in the cafeteria when that happened, I wasn't in catering. Um, if, in fact, that really happened, the guy's lucky he just got slapped if he said something like that. Let's talk about it. A lot of our listeners may not be familiar, but the, what comes to a head here is... A social media manager named Cody, uh, allegedly had an incident with, uh, Alberto where there's somewhere in catering and someone tells Cody, he should clean off his plate. And the social media manager named Cody, not Cody Rhodes said, that's what Del Rio was here for. And apparently word got back to Del Rio. And when he asked for an apology, Cody smirked and didn't apologize. So Alberto slapped him. And supposedly this is around the same time that that social media manager is leaving the company, but maybe WWE felt like they needed to uh, sort of insulate themselves from any sort of feedback or negative press or bad PR, whatever. So it winds up that both Cody and Alberto are out of here and maybe both are taking checks with them, but that's the backstory. Continue with, with your train of thought. 
Yeah, I mean, you just don't say that to somebody. With all the politics and all the things that, that go, and, and, and you understand that in today's world, there's things you just can't say that 10 years ago would have just been taken as a joke. But there's just there's sensitivities these days that people just don't want to be talked down to in any fashion, especially when it has to do with whatever you know your race or or your color or or your your political slant or any of those things. You know, it's it's just it's not right, and people just they're not going to put up with it anymore. And for that to be said to Alberto in a room full of his peers, I don't care what's politically right or that, that that's a company setting or whatever it is. Like I said, he's lucky. Did he? That's all that happened. If, in fact, it went down that way, which I do not know. Um, and you found out that the guy's all man. He asked for an apology. That would have probably been the end of it, but he didn't get it, so that's what happened. I know the company doesn't like to be seen in a – negative light and and a wrestler who is they would consider being a i don't know if that's considered being a trained killer or not uh we're entertainers but uh if that would have been an mma guy or a boxer they would have looked at that as hitting a civilian and probably if it went to court sad as that may sound you you would have probably lost the case if you would have been the wrestler who knows? But uh, anyway, Alberto, it was a loss for all of us that worked with him. And like I said, at that point in time, he was never better. His work was never better. His thought process was never better. And I, and I thought we lost a good piece of talent that day. We did lose a good piece of talent that day. He would be back. And um, I'm sure there's more about Alberto to tell in the future. Uh Something that was really, really getting everybody's attention in this era, though, was that SmackDown was going to be moving. Um, Sci-Fi and WWE announced that January 15th, SmackDown will go back to its original night, Thursday night. It had been on Friday night. Now it's going back to Thursday. It'll still be in that 8 to 10 p.m. slot. It debuted way back when on UPN on Thursdays and then was moved to Fridays in 2005. And when UPN folded and became CW, they canceled the show in 08, where it moved to my, my network TV for two seasons. So SmackDown is sort of bouncing around all over the place here. Is that one of the other reasons that maybe internally it's always been viewed as the B show? I mean, Monday night raw has been on Monday night since the beginning. SmackDown has always felt like the little brother. Is that just from a fan perspective or internally amongst the talent as well? Well, I don't, I don't think the talent thought that, um, matter of fact, they all went the other way because if you were on SmackDown, when Fit Finley was the reg, the regular, uh, agent for SmackDown, um, and there would be a second one there, but he was like the SmackDown producer for the live events and stuff. And Undertaker was working regular and all the time. And you had all that leadership on the SmackDown show, locker room leaders and, and things of that nature, they took it very personally if you said they were the B show. And the fact that they couldn't find that proper day on the big network like they should have had, 
was not their fault, but it affected how show business, because when you start moving a TV show around, most people are creatures of habit. I know I am. I know what comes on, what time my shows come on, on what network, and that's it. If you move it, I'm lost. I can't find it. And I think that happened to that product quite a bit, getting moved around to to these small networks and on different days and, and different, you know, settings and all that stuff. And uh, But I know it was considered the B show, but it wasn't. Nobody wanted to say that. But nothing, and I mean nothing, got in the way of Raw and making Raw the number one show and the flagship of the company. That was first consideration, period. Let's keep it moving and talk about the uh, the impact of WrestleMania. The New Orleans mayor would announce that WrestleMania that year generated more income for a region than any in history, claiming an economic impact of $142 million. And this is based on a study from the Enigma Research Corporation. That's $24.3 million in federal, state, and local taxes. Of the 65,000 fans who attended WrestleMania, it's discovered that only 14,000 are local. The other 51,000 were from outside the New Orleans area. Man, you want to talk about tourism, 51,000 tourists. That's, uh, that's a lot of folks. Has that always been the case? Would you guess? What was that big number you threw out that it brought to the city? Was the first? 142 million of economic impact, which by the way, for our listeners, that wouldn't just mean tickets to wrestling shows. We're talking about Uber taxis, hotels, food, airlines, the whole thing. That's how much I spent eating in the French quarter that week. <laughs> <laughs> what's your, uh, what's your favorite restaurant in new Orleans? Do you have a go-to? I, do, I can eyeball it and, and tell you that's the place, but I can't tell you the name. I just, I love that Cajun food, man. It's, it's tremendous. Cajun seafood is addicting big time. Let's talk about, um, St. Louis for a minute. Of course, that's the the site of survivor series here. What, what are your, some of your favorite St. Louis memories over the years? Well, the thing about St. Louis, the first thing that you hear, if you've been around a while and you want to be a student of this business and you want to know the history of it and you care more about just being on TV and a big shot in your neighborhood and making a lot of money and getting out when you feel like you got enough, if you really want to learn this business and go back in time and figure out, okay, who made it possible for me to be in the position I'm in right now and be making a nice living in this industry? Who, you know, who paved the way, who paid, uh, all the dues, who worked their ass off? Where did they do it? Where were the, the premier places to wrestle? St. Louis is one of the greatest sports cities on earth, not just in this country. And it was renowned for following their baseball team they supported their hockey team they support their football team everybody that's ever been to st louis will tell you it's a great sports city and wrestling going all the way back to probably what the 50s right has been a big deal for the people of St. Louis. And the one thing that you remember other than, you know, I'm sure there are guys that, that party in St. Louis, just like any other big city and all that. And they have their deal. The thing about, I always enjoyed about St. Louis. It was the educated fans. 
They knew the stories. They knew who the good guys were. They knew who the bad guys were. They liked who they liked, but they would give you a true reaction to what was going on in the ring. You didn't have the packs of the smart asses that just wanted to be heard and call attention to themselves. They were there to enjoy the story of each match. And, you know, the guys would go out that understood where they were and what the history was, and they would try to give you just a little bit extra. I know we did. We tried to give you 100% every town we went to every night. But if you could do 105% for those people because of the history and how much they've always supported wrestling, that's what you tried to do. And that's my memories of St. Louis. They're a great group of fans. Let's talk about uh, Bob Geigel. He was the former NWA president. Obviously, he had some memories in St. Louis. October 30th, 2014, we lose him at the age of 90. Uh, any, uh, any memories or stories about your interactions with Mr. Geigel? I think I only met Mr. Geigel one time and it was probably 80, 86 or 87, somewhere in there. And I, I just, I knew the history. It was an honor, uh, to meet him. And, uh, I know that the business needed more people like him. Uh, he was not just a, quote, figurehead. He actually had the best uh, interests of the business at heart at all times. And uh, it was a real regulating body that all those guys that were members of the NWA that, that owned territories, I mean, they were votes and there were things that actually went down like an actual board and he was the head of it. So a lot of big decisions were made in his office, and you have to respect that. Let's talk about the show. We're finally here, Survivor Series 2014. Uh, of course, this is on the WWE Network. Uh, before we get started, we've got uh, Fandango and Justin Gabriel. They're going to go three and a half minutes. Uh, this match happens about 50 minutes before the pay-per-view Meltzer would say the people weren't ready for it. It's just a normal style TV match with Fandango winning with a vertical suplex and then a twisting leg drop off the top rope. He gave it a half a star. I do want to ask you about this because we, you and I haven't spent much time talking about this, but back in the day, um, especially on a pay-per-view and I know this is still the undercard before the pay-per-view officially starts. The idea of having a three minute match was pretty rare. On a house show, it was almost unheard of. You guys would get a lot of time, you know, back in the heyday of the 80s. What kind of story can a guy like Fandango and a guy like Justin Gabriel tell in three minutes and 25 seconds? None. Takes longer than that to walk to the ring and back. Right. Not a, To be honest with you, not a lot of thought or care went into, at that particular time, went into the pre-show and that's everybody's fault. You can't point fingers at anybody. That's everybody's fault. At some point, somebody should have stopped and said, Hey, it was more placeholders and something to give the audience who were getting restless because they were waiting on the big show to get started. Uh, a lot more thought should have been put into it and nobody should ever have a match that short. Um, Fandango, very good performer. The other gentleman, who was it he was in the match Just, with? Justin Gabriel. Justin Gabriel. Same thing. These guys could have went out there for 10 or 12 minutes, tore the house down. Even if they didn't have a story, 
they could have created one if they would have had enough time. Uh, I think on that same show, you had Cesaro and Swagger, which was, I think, the next match, correct, on that pre-show? Yeah, you're exactly right. You can't tell me those two couldn't have tore it up if you'd have gave them 15, 17 minutes. You have to be able to go out if you're going to tell a story. You got to have time. Time is your most critical asset. It's as important as having an angle on TV or a story behind it. You can go out and create your own story, bell to bell. That's what you have to do a lot of nights. Every night, you're not in an angle match. Most nights, you're not in an angle match. So you have to go out and create something, but you got to have some time to do it. And uh, that's two guys, because the fans to this day love Cesaro. Swagger was the world champion, for God's sakes. You're telling me that you can't take a guy that you thought enough of at that time to make him the world champion? You can't give him enough time to go out and have a match with a guy like Cesaro, who is a Swedish Superman in every way, in every sense of the word. Should be ashamed of yourself if you couldn't. Let me ask you this. What, what, what soured Vince on Swagger? You know, he comes in with a big push, the title, uh, as you said, you know, title pushes, he's going to be the world champ. It feels like they, they put their power behind him and they put their motivational push behind him. And then at some point Vince just. Peter's out on him. What changed? What happened? This is me going from memory, which sometimes you could trust. Sometimes you can't. I know that we, the pip, we, the people, when he was with his manager, Dutch, yeah. Dutch Mantel got over. It got over. But I actually think that somebody said that is too Southern, that is too racist a gimmick, almost like the South versus the North and the Civil War or something of that nature was said to Vince and without a counterpoint. Now, I'm just... I'm speculating because it got over. We, the people, those two guys together got over Dutch doing the talking. It just, it was golden. It was perfect. The look was golden. Everything about it was working. Swagger could go and it got over. I remember one time he tried to do a promo on TV and they were so deafening. He couldn't even get the words out. He had to just keep stopping because they were drowning him out. And I don't remember where the city was, but was ridiculous but i bet you someone said that's too southern a gimmick it got killed it was over plus dutch had some issues with traveling to all the towns because of his health so you didn't get that package you got it on tv but you wouldn't get it for all the live events it was just too hard on him somebody said it's too southern it's it's not the same thing when you get to the live events let's just cut it off because it went from wide open to pretty much just cooled off in record time. That was in 2013. Uh, and that did, that did get over, but you guys put the belt on him back in like March of 2010. So this, that almost the, we, the people thing almost felt like a, a second run for Jack Swagger, but between 2010 and 2013, while well, he's still hanging around a little bit, it's not, um, 
I don't know. It just doesn't feel like WWE was ever really behind him or really committed. Did they think that maybe there wasn't enough personality that he wasn't a good promo? Did Vince not like his look? I know this sounds silly, but for instance, Bruce has told us on something to wrestle that, uh, Vince actually toyed with the idea of putting a blue dot over Christian's face. He just didn't think Christian was attractive and didn't want him on TV and whatever he could do to cover his face up. And that sounds just silly to me in hindsight, especially knowing what an incredible performer that, that Jay in real life was and, and everybody who worked with him would, would, would support that swagger feels like another guy who, for whatever reason, Vince just lost confidence in, and I can't really put my finger on why. I mean, he, here he is now in MMA and he's, he's got a prime spot in AEW, and that feels like a good fit, but for whatever reason with WWE, it wasn't sustainable. And I can only sort of chalk that up to some sort of quirk somewhere in a decision-making process. And you're probably a hundred, hundred percent, right. I don't know what that would have been. What was, was his delivery on promos, not what Vince was looking for. Was there a little bit of a, just a little bit of a, uh, greenness to his promos. It had nothing to do with his work. You know, I mean, was there something, and I'm not saying this is true. I'm just being hypothetical. Any little thing, delivery, it, it, it could have been anything that, that cooled him off. Someone could have said, I don't know. It's just things got said in a closed door meeting that without a counterpoint there to defend it, a lot of things went down. You know, there was a lot of guys over the years that, got hot next day they were gone or a week later they were doing main event matches or dark matches or secondary matches or no matches or just house shows, no TV at all. And you never knew why. And, and that's one of those big mysteries and questions that swagger because he was legitimate. He had the pedigree. It was incredible amateur wrestler at Oklahoma and the guy could work. And he was big, and he looked good. There was nothing physically that you would look at. You would look at the guy and go, oh, that's a good-looking athlete. And he was. It's worth mentioning, too. He's he's built at 6'7". So this is, a, this is a big boy. And, um, well, either way, they dropped the ball on him. And a lot of people would argue that maybe they dropped the ball on Cesaro. Uh, let's talk about Cesaro for a minute. Of course, he's still there. And um, a lot of fans remember he was so over that fans were passing out signs that said Cesaro section. There was a groundswell amongst the fans. We want this guy. And it felt like once upon a time, they were going to try that. They flirted with the idea of him being a Paul Heyman guy. And then eventually Vince McMahon appeared on stone cold's podcast, which aired on the network and stone cold was a big Cesaro fan. So he pushed for it. And it felt like the following week on TV, we were finally going to get some Cesaro promo time. Some people would say he flubbed a line. I forget exactly what it was, but he said something like, you know, nobody can do what I can do in these three sides or four ropes or three. And he sort of fumbled the line a little bit, whatever it may have been. And it felt like after that, we never really saw what we could have seen with Cesaro until the pairing with Seamus came around. And I think a lot of fans will probably point to his run with Seamus as his greatest success. What do you think it was about Cesaro that, and obviously things could change. He's still there where he never quite reached his full potential within the WWE system. It was probably outspoken. 
probably stood up for itself, which is not taken lightly or very well. This is a guy that did a giant swing on Kali for God's sakes. Right. If you didn't see it, pull it up, find it. Had it not been for Big Show having a bad knee or a bad hip, and I can't remember which, it might have been a bad hip, he could have, uh, he had the wherewithal to giant swing Big Show, for God's sakes. His hip being bad is the only thing that prevented it. Now, put that visual in your head. The guy is superhuman strong. When he was with Sheamus, if you go back again, you got to go back and watch matches. All the things that he had done to get himself over as a single when he became partners with Sheamus, these guys were heels. You didn't want to do all the pretty stuff. You didn't want to suplex a guy from the, you know, who's on the outside all the way on the floor. You reach across, you're standing on the bottom rope and you stand him straight up, you know, and suplex him into the ring. All those things that he did that were so incredible, they didn't do because they were a heel team and they were trying to get the baby faces over. Um, And he sacrificed like a lot of heels do her cast into that, that tag slot they end up losing their individuality and they their their uh, selfishness has to go away. They can't worry about just getting themselves other. They got three other guys in the ring to worry about. So that's what I thought happened. I think he probably still has the tools that he always had. Well, Who knows? We know now that you've got the tools that are perfectly engineered for your family jewels. Of course, we're talking about Arn Anderson scrotum. He's been manscaping boys and girls, as Jr. would say, he no longer looks like uh, Davy Crockett's hat down there. And, uh, it's all thanks to the new lawnmower 2.0. It's got proprietary skin safe technology. So the trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. What's that mean for you? It means manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And you don't use the same trimmer on your face that you're using on your balls. Do you? That's just nasty. Manscaped also has the crop preserver, which I know Arn's big on. It's anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why aren't you putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off plus free shipping with our promo code ARN. That's A-R-N at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job and your balls will thank you. One more time, get 20% off and free shipping with our promo code ARN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscape.com and the promo code is Arn. Arn, how uh how shocked were you when you answered the door one day and you opened up the, the delivery and inside was ball deodorant? Number one, before we move forward, you just went off the heels of the period on the statement I was making and just went right to the scrotum. <laughs> well, the heart of the matter, if you will. You know, there's got to be a little bit of dead time for us to change subjects. You can't just bust into that like that. I'm, I'm the I want king it, of the segue. I want, uh, you, I, I, stop it. I want one thing perfectly clear as well. You know all these things because I told you these things. This is not something that you saw, correct? <laughs> no, thank God. I did not I did not witness any of it. I'm taking you at your word, and you've never lied to me, so I'm going to assume that you're telling me the truth about your sack meat. 
I would be horrified and you would be blind. So neither one of us would benefit from showing you that. Just take my word for it. I'm looking way too good these days down there. Way too good is what you're going to be looking and feeling and smelling. Check it out. Manscaped.com. Use that promo code ARN, A-R-N. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. Now, let's get to the start of the pay-per-view. The pay-per-view opens almost like it's a Monday Night Raw. Vince McMahon is out with Triple H, Stephanie, and John Cena. And Vince is explaining the stipulation of our main event. If Cena's team loses, he's responsible for all four men losing their jobs. And Triple H notes that it's four men with kids and bills coming in and it'll all be John Cena's fault. And he said, when Cena's team loses, they'll all come back and beg and plead to keep their jobs, but they're all still fired anyway. And then the fans will just completely forget about them. Like they have every other WWE superstar. And Stephanie said, as soon as they're gone, the fans will forget because they don't really care. Meanwhile, Stephanie points out that if her team loses, the authority won't be on TV every week, but they'll still be calling all the shots from the global headquarters in Stanford. And Vince stops her and says she and triple H would keep their desk jobs, but they would have no influence on the career of any WWE superstars. And he said that in the contract, only one person will be able to put them back into power. And Stephanie smiled, figuring it was her father. And then Vince says, no, it's John Cena. So they had to come up with an angle here. Cena to want them back. And Vince is telling triple H and Stephanie, that's how much confidence he has in them. And he says something like you're a McMahon. And he looks at triple H and says, you married a McMahon. And of course, Cena says, well, when you lose, there's no chance in hell you're coming back. So we have our stakes for our main event before we get any further into the show, just fundamentally, what do you think about opening a pay-per-view with a big promo like this? Always like to have a great match. I like to come up if you're going to have the pyro and all the pomp and circumstance, man, send a somebody that they really want to see somebody that they were talking about seeing on their drive over to the arena and somebody they've been talking about for a month, send them through the curtain right away. Let's get, give these people who've been sitting there. They probably left an hour early to drive to the arena. They got to the arena an hour early and they're ready for something and it ain't talking. Let's get to some action. Man, this is uh, such an interesting time in wrestling because I think so many fans were growing tired of the authority, but we're finally going to see the big payoff at the end. But first, let's talk about something that was a lot of fun here. The Miz and Damian Mizdow win the tag titles over Goldust and Stardust in a four-way that also included the Usos and Los Matadores. And given that Goldust and Stardust are no more and they're tearing things up in AEW, and the, the the Ms. Dow character is no longer around. I think I miss Ms. Dow more than any other character that that uh, Mr. Stevens ever put together. The funny thing about this, and if you haven't seen this, you owe it to yourself to go back and watch this, just so you can see the Ms. Dow character. He's he's just basically the stunt double of the Miz. So the Miz has convinced us all he's this huge movie star. And it's Ms. Dow's job, the former Davian Sandow, to mimic all of the action that Ms. is doing. So Ms. Dow's on the outside taking what Dave Meltzer calls phantom bumps, and the crowd is really taking over here. It's probably a distraction from the match, and therefore you probably hate it. But as a fan, I thought it was tremendous. And there's also a huge pop when he finally tags in because the fans 
are so behind the character. They're actually chanting. We want Ms. Dow. What do you think of this Ms. Dow? Or what did you think of this Ms. Dow character? Was it just funny on TV and hurt the matches or where would an Arn Anderson fall on this creative? I'm going to trip you up this time. I loved it. Absolutely right. loved it. And more food for thought. Ms. Dow should have won the match, which I believe he did. Correct. Yeah. Ms. should have gave him some shit that day right then and got knocked on his ass. Ms. Dow should have went to the next level. That's what I think. Because he did get over, was not intended, was intended to help Ms. get over, but the guy did such an incredible job with it, it got over. And, they, you know, everywhere he went, I mean, the guy's having a match with himself on the floor while there's another match going on. It was it was artistically beautiful. The guy should have got a shove, and it's another one of those guys like Swagger. You could probably put Ryback in that in that uh, uh, same sentence. Guys that caught the attention of the audience, and then suddenly the water was cut off because it wasn't part of the grand scheme or the grand plan of the quote office. This one just seems like a no brainer. The fans are so far behind it. I mean, the, the crowd interaction on this, you really have to go back and watch to see the match is only 15, 23, which I guess is relatively long for a match in this era, but it's really, really well done to the point that, you know, even after the win, whenever Miz raises his hands with the belt, the fans boo, but when Miz Dow raises his, his hands, the fans cheer. So it's an interesting dynamic. Let's talk about some of the other folks who are involved in this match. Uh, Goldust and Stardust. Of course, it's uh, Cody and Dustin Rhodes. What'd you think of uh, of their work as a tag team here? I, I would say probably underrated. Very underrated. And I love the look of, and I told Cody this all the time, I love the look of the Stardust character. Um, him, and, and, him and Dustin made a damn fine team, and they were good in this match and in that role. I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm being very sincere. And I know that you'll know this when I, when I finish the thought, I feel like when people talk about great tag team specialists over the years, sure. They say the midnights and the rock and rolls and blah, blah, blah. But when they talk about individual performers who wrestled both individually and as tags, I think a lot of people just automatically jump to two of the greatest tag wrestlers of all time were Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson. I think Dustin Rhodes should be on that list too. It feels like he's been a part of 38 different successful tag teams. You bet. You will not find me ever saying anything negative about Dustin Rhodes and in his thought process or the quality of his work. I was fortunate enough to have him and have him with Bobby and I when he was very first starting. And uh, he had Ricky Steamboat as a partner some of that time. And we would go 30, 40, 45 minutes and a lot of tags. And uh, his work was absolutely tremendous. You could take Cody and you can go back when he was with Ted DiBiase Jr. They were a very good team. And when they were with Randy, that was an awesome package. So you can say that for the both of those guys. 
tag champ with, uh, Mike Graham, big Josh, Tom Zink, Ricky Steamboat, Barry Windham, Cody Rhodes, Booker T just on and on and on. This guy had so many different tag runs with so many different partners and he made it work every time. Uh, in case you're wondering at home, Los Matadores is Primo and Epico. And of course the Usos, two other fine tag teams. Let's keep it moving here. Next up, we've got Adam Rose and the bunny. They're out playing with toys and then Titus O'Neill and Heath Slater show up and make fun of Rose. So I guess Slater is back to a heel here. And this is going to set up a match for later. Adam Rose is not long for the WWE and some uh, photos just recently surfaced of him present day. It looks like he has really, really bulked up, uh, not in a Conrad kind of way, but he's a jacked up dude. Now totally changed his look. What did you think of this Adam Rose character with the whole rave and the big party group, especially looking back, realizing, Hey, some of the times those folks in the background were Becky Lynch and Braun Strowman. <laughs> oh, you better never say that in front of Braun. <laughs> I would suggest Becky either. Becky may wallop you harder and quicker than uh, Braun would. I wasn't, I wasn't a big fan because, you know, let's go back to something we talked about earlier. There were people, you know, when there were talent cuts and budget cuts and all those things, people were losing their jobs, good performers that just hadn't been on TV in a while and got cut loose. To have 15 guys out there all in costume hanging out ringside at probably three to 500 bucks a pop for Adam Rose, who was going to be cast in the first match every night. Didn't seem like a good use of funds. Nothing to do with him. That was his gimmick at NXT. He brought it with him when he came to the, you know, but you're talking about budgets and all that, you know, to have 15 extras there and have to, as a producer, take them down, make sure they got costumed and all that stuff and make sure they knew what they were doing. It was just a bunch of fluff for a first match match and uh, had nothing to do with the ability of Adam Rose. I have seen the pictures you're talking about, and he looks like a big, convincing dude right now. I'd uh, love to see a match of his, um, see if his work has changed. Uh, I know that in those days he was small because he was watching everything that he was eating because he knows Vince likes guys to be lean and all that. But uh, look, if you if you saw a picture of him today, you would never know that was Adam oh, Rose. You absolutely would not. Uh, next up, we've got a ladies match here, and this is an elimination match. On one side, we've got Natalia, Naomi, Emma, and Alicia Fox. On the other side, we've got Paige, Summer Rae, Cameron, and Layla. And, uh, Natalia's team wins in four straight falls. Uh, the fans are, are still chanting. We want Mizdow here, which tells you just exactly how over he was not the best match that we've ever seen here. Tyson kid is going to be celebrating. Like he himself just won the match after the fact it's one star, but there's plenty of time on it. 14 minutes, 21 seconds. Uh, a lot of these ladies are no longer in the promotion. Of course, Emma no longer with them. Paige is no longer wrestling, but she's still there. Summer Ray's gone on and on. Uh, in this era, is this fit Finley's job? Would he have been agenting this match? Um, probably, uh, it depends on were there other women's matches on the card or was that the only one? 
Uh, that's a good question. Now there's still the, the title match with Nikki and AJ. For sure. If it would have had that one, uh, I'm thinking he probably had all the girls stuff. Um, some of those girls were very green. You cannot blame the fact that they were put in that position. They were probably there light years before they were ready. Um, I can't recall the match, so I can't be specific, but Finley would have probably had that one too. Let's keep it going here. Talk about the next match. Uh, we've got Bray Wyatt and Dean Ambrose to give you, uh, some context at the hell in the cell pay-per-view Bray Wyatt attacked Dean Ambrose during his match with Seth Rollins. And that's how we got to this match. It's going to be three and a quarter stars. Meltzer is going to describe the finish as feeling like a cheap DQ. They go 14 minutes and two seconds. Um, both of these guys are doing different stuff these days. Of course, Bray Wyatt is the fiend. And Dean Ambrose is now John Moxley in AEW. What'd you think of this one? You watched it for the first time in a long time this week. Pray Wyatt, for some reason, never won a match on a pay-per-view up until just recently. Am I wrong about that? I don't know that you are. I mean, he does win here by DQ, but that doesn't really count. No. I think if you go back, and I think I read that, I wasn't so in tune to it that I just knew it because I don't keep up with wins and losses. I do know when a guy has lost a lot though, for some reason I have a, um, have a little sensor in my head that goes off. I, I don't know who's won how many times and who's lost how many times, but when a guy starts to lose a lot, the sensor goes off in my head and go, God, we're beating this guy a lot. And that guy got beat a lot. No one has ever had more control and more power and more, oh, what is the word I'm looking for here? More grasp of his character than Bray Wyatt when he first came aboard and for the first couple of years. No one could have scripted those promos for him. No one could have told him, this is the way I want you to work. He had such a grasp. And when he was with Rowan and Harper, specifically, uh, before Braun, because once they brought Braun aboard, they had to start featuring him, and it was less featuring Bray. But he just had that character, and it was a creepy character. And, you know, it was misinterpreted that the guy was a babyface because they did the the lights, like the concert deal, when he was making his way to the entrance. That had nothing to do with the way he was perceived. You know, that's where things get screwed up. A lot of people in positions that are too high for what their knowledge level is, you know, make decisions. Well, God, look look at all those cigarette lighters or look at all those camera phones on. He's a baby face. No, he's not. You black out the arena. That's their way of being part of the show. That's it. Once the lights come up, if he has an opponent that they like, they're going to continue to like that opponent. They're not going to cheer for Bray, and certainly not when he's got Harper and Rowan with him. So Moxley today, who's Dean Ambrose at when he was there, is a – whether he's evil Knievel. He don't care. You want to throw him out of the ceiling? Good. How do I get up there? You want to throw him off the roof? Well, hell, let's do that next show. 
that guy has no regard for his body whatsoever. So he's a perfect foil for a guy like Bray Wyatt. And those guys had a very, very aggressive, very physical match. And uh, I love that kind of stuff. I, I'm, I don't worry about it being a DQ if it's the right kind of DQ. If it's flat, if it's a bullshit flat finish, that there's no way to fix that. There's a lot of wild DQs that just suddenly two guys disappear out of sight. You don't see them again, but they just gave you 20 minutes of a hell of a fight. So uh, that's the flip side of the coin. This one was pretty good. It was light like that. Ambrose is going to start throwing. Obviously, he does uh, the big elbow drop uh, off the top into the table. Then he gets a second table, puts Wyatt on it. Then he throws a ton of chairs into the ring like he's Terry Funk, pulls out a 12-foot ladder from under the ring. Uh, he's posing it as officials get in the ring, try to stop him from doing any more. So you're highlighting the uh, the insanity from Ambrose here. And Meltzer would say that, it was well done, but it still felt like a cheap DQ. Then there's up next on the show, a team authority pep talk. Stephanie's promising her talent, more title matches, more power, more fame, and more money if they win. And, you know, she's almost in tears saying we can't lose. And triple H is promising. This would be a moment in history where everything will change. He says, if you don't win, you won't be fired, but you'll wish you were. Because if you're a champion, you're going to lose your title. And if you're not a champion, and he's looking directly at Rollins, you never will be. And up next, we've got the match that was set up earlier in the pay-per-view. Adam Rose is going to team with the bunny. That's a real thing. To take on Titus O'Neil and Heath Slater. They go two minutes and 34 seconds. It sort of is what it is. Um, it's a quick match. The bunny pins Heath Slater after a missile drop kick. Then the bunny does, uh, Adam Rose's nasty plunge off the apron into the arms of the Rosebuds quarter star. Did, did Vince have some sort of, I mean, he just thought this was funny and he wanted a bunny to wrestle. I don't like if, if, if anybody else did this, we would be making fun of it, but here for whatever reason, it gets a pass. Thing that jumps off the page to me is why do that to Heath Slater? Yeah. He's better than that. Right now, today, they could still be chanting, he's got kids. Yeah. He's that good. He, I knew Slater. One of his first matches, I went down to the school and produced. And uh, it was a 30-minute match. And um, I saw that day. He's very, very good. PJ Black, what was his name with WWE? PJ Black is Justin Gabriel who wrestled Just on the undercard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He Slater, I went down and Justin Gabriel, they had a 30-minute match at the school down there and they were looking at being pulled up. And now this is years and years and years ago. And I went down to produce a 30-minute match with him and I saw that day He Slater had it. So did Justin Gabriel. To be put in that situation is just criminal. And uh, you ask me why it's on the show. I have no idea. There's entertainment. Yeah. You know, gobbledygooker is not good entertainment. The bunny is not good entertainment. There's good entertainment. And then there's just throwing shit out there because you consider that's entertainment. And that's what we do. That ain't what we do. Does anybody ever 
speak up in any of those meetings and say, why are we doing this? Or has Vince created or maybe cultivated an environment where it's just a series of people who are scared to speak up. So everybody just keeps their head down and tries to keep a check coming in one more week. Well, yeah, I know one that did. And that's why I'm sitting here doing this podcast with you. (laughs) Well, Lord bless you. I spoke up. Of course I did. I mean, there's some stuff that, you know, if you're paid to not just be a, a yes man and you're actually paid for your knowledge and your experience and your wisdom and you, uh, whether it's during the meeting or you wait and go back after the meeting and you voice a different way to go, even though it, it is completely the opposite of, uh, where Crate is headed that day. If it's something totally different, it's not met very favorably. I can tell you that. All right, Aaron, let's run a timeout right now to tell everybody about savewithconrad.com. And of course you are a tag team specialist. Many a times you were looking for that hot tag. And if you're looking for the hot tag right now with maybe some credit card bills, some home remodeling projects, or it would just be nice to take a vacation from house payments, go to savewithconrad.com right now. Here's what we're talking about. We talk about vacation from house payments. You won't have to make your November or your December house payment. You're done until next year. And come next year, you're going to have a better mortgage. What we're going to do is twofold. We're going to find a way to get you lower monthly payments. Even if it means we get rid of some of your high interest rate credit cards, we're going to get you a much better rate there and give you a greater tax break. But at the same time, we're going to cut years. That's right. You heard me years off of your home loan. If you're still paying on a 30 year loan, what are you waiting for? Now is the perfect time to take advantage of these historically low interest rates and get rid of your other debt to make life a whole heck of a lot easier. If you're serious about getting out of debt, you've got to go to savewithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And it's 10 minutes right now, fast and easy. If we can't save you some money, we won't waste your time. And we're licensed in more more than 40 states. So we're probably licensed where you are too. Find out how easy it is to save money at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the next match and how we got here. It's going to be for the women's title. The divas championship is what they were calling it back then on the Halloween edition of SmackDown. Nikki Bella would win a battle Royal and therefore she earns a Divas a divas title match against AJ Lee and unbelievably Nikki pins AJ to win the title in 34 seconds. Bree would kiss AJ on the lips and then Nikki attacks her from behind, gives her the rack attack and pins her. They push that this is essentially a repeat of the Sheamus Daniel Bryan WrestleMania match where AJ kissed Daniel Bryan. He walks into a kick and loses the world title. But this is obviously before there is the big movement for, you know, the women's evolution or revolution as it were. It gets a dud rating, but 34 seconds for a title match. Golly, the women deserve more here. Do they not? Especially when it's two capable performers. I always thought Nikki was underrated and, and AJ Lee is, is probably sorely missed in that company right now. AJ Lee is the young lady that I said, do you mind standing on this floor and having big show roar around this post and run you over? And she said, Absolutely. She is a uh, trooper, and you're right. Nikki Bella could work. So could Bree. 
And for that time, before this evolution of of tremendous workers came along and and morphed into the product that we have today, they were they were some of your better performers. Thirty four seconds just sucked. You ask what story can you tell? Absolutely nothing. There is no story. It's thirty four seconds. It's just putting people on television and just putting them in a pay per view to consider. Uh, so that you consider them on the pay-per-view, which means they must be part of the stars that work for the company. But if it doesn't benefit anyone from being there, then if you're sitting home and you spent that 55 bucks, that's just dead time and it's just downtime. And, you know, you got to look at those sort of things. Plus, you don't do anything for the talent themselves as far as building them for the next TV the next pay-per-view next up it's our main event while we're really here well i guess it's not really while we're here but he's going to show up it's team cena versus team authority you know the stakes we've rent through those team cena consists of of course john cena ryback dolph ziggler eric rowan and big show on the other side team authority seth rollins kane mark henry rusev and luke harper it's an elimination match to put the elimination or to put the authority out of power or for the right to fire Ryback, Dolph Ziggler, Eric Rowan, and Big Show. Our baby faces prevail. 43 minutes and five seconds is the length of the match. One of the longer main events of the modern era, but it gets started real fast when Mark Henry runs right into Big Show's fist for a one punch knockout at just 48 seconds. And then this, I guess is a bit of a surprise. The entire buildup to this match was about which team would get Ryback. And he ends up being an incidental player in the match where he's the second eliminated at eight minutes and nine seconds after uh, a curb stomp from Rollins, Rusev would pin him. And that's a wrap for him. Ultimately, uh, while we've got uh, Dolph Ziggler jumping in to beat the count. Uh, Harper, Kane, and Rollins are unable to lift Rusev up to get him in, and he's counted out at 21 minutes. As we continue, we see Luke Harper pin Eric Rowan after a spinning clothesline at 24 minutes and 13 seconds. Rollins would pin John Cena after Big Show would turn on Cena and knock him out with one punch at 25 minutes and 12 seconds. And then a zigzag and a super kick and all kinds of stuff from Ziggler would pin Kane at 29.32. Ziggler's going to uh, get a schoolboy out of nowhere on Harper for a pin at 31-33. So there's lots of moving parts here, lots of action. But then the big moment comes where it looks like the entire authority, which is Triple H, Joey Mercury, Jamie Noble, Seth Rollins, they're all beating up on Dolph Ziggler. And eventually, what do you know? Sting appears on the screen. And he walks to the ring. He decks the referee, Scott Armstrong, who it looks like was also a crooked referee. He then gets in the ring. He and triple H do a stare down for what feels like two or three minutes. And then Rollins and Ziggler are both playing dead. Now there's three referees who've taken big bumps and none of them are recovering. Triple H finally goes to attack sting, but sting comes back, lays him out with a scorpion death drop. And then he puts Ziggler on top of Rollins and walks off. The first referee recovers and counts the pin 
And the show ends with Stephanie in tears. Triple H is stunned and the crowd is chanting. Yes, yes, yes. And you got fired. Stephanie's all hysterical as we go off the air. Four and a half stars is the rating in the observer. So a very good match, lots of action, a little bit of something for everybody. And then the big debut and backstage that day, Sting was nowhere to be seen. He wasn't hanging out and catering. They hit him in a bus or wherever it was. And then when he made the big debut, man, fans were excited, even though they had a suspicion that it was coming since he had appeared in the WWE game commercials and things like that. They knew there had to be some sort of dialogue. But to, for him to finally debut like this at in St. Louis, it was a big moment for Sting and a big night for WWE fans who were tired of the authority and wanted the authority to take their loss. Seeing Stephanie hysterical as we went off the air was a cool visual. What'd you think then? And what'd you think this week? Watching it back for the first time in a long time. Well, there were a lot of moving parts and it was a lot of, it was very difficult to put that together. Um, that was an all hands on deck production. I'm sure, you know, because you had, you know, we just skipped past the fact that big show betrayed his partners, you know, there was a true giant. And to this day, the guy is a true giant walking the earth. They flip flopped him so many times that it just people quit caring. And for you to not care or feel the threat of that guy walking in the room, you've really accomplished something. So that's a huge fumble that I don't think probably ever even got addressed properly. But, you know, I don't know what the TVs that followed. I can't remember. I do know that when you go to all that trouble to set the scene and you bring down Sting, I would think the three-minute stare down is incidental. I would have probably suggested he hit the ring with his ass on fire and give him some targets to clean to clean off and uh, and get right to the finish other than the weight and the stare down and all that. That's That's where my opinion differs from the one that matters, which is the owner of the company. He would rather have the drama. But to me, to have that much at stake, and, and I feel like the authority had run its course and the audience was ready for something else. When Cena failed and they saw that Cena was not going to be able to pull this off, uh, and now the guy you don't really expect, uh, Sting shows up. And his ass should have been on fire and everybody should have been getting burnt that was in reaching distance. And it should have been the beginning of a sting push and a semi-regular character on the show, in my opinion. I mean, it seemed like a big buildup to go to one match. Well, if you're looking for a big buildup, you got to use bluechew.com. It's going to offer our men a performance enhancement for the bedroom and at bluechew.com. You can get the world's first chewables with the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but because you skip the in-person doctor's visit, it's also cheaper than those other two. Instead, you'll work with a bluechew.com affiliated physician. who will help you find the right dosage and active ingredient, but because it's chewable, it can work faster and you can even take it on a full or an empty stomach, but maybe best of all. This is going to skip all the awkward conversation. As we mentioned, no in-person doctor visit, but also no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Instead, it's going to ship directly to your door in discreet packaging. And to be clear, 
This isn't just for guys who think they have a problem. This is for guys who want to put on a show. This is for guys who want to wow a partner. If you're looking to uh, go a few extra rounds, maybe last a little longer, you're going to love the chewables from bluechew.com. They're made right here in the USA. So why don't you chew it and do it? And here's a great deal for you guys. Visit bluechew.com. And just because you listen to this show, you get your first order for free when you use the promo code ARN. That's A R N. Just pay the $5 shipping at bluechew.com with the promo code ARN, A R N. And of course, bluechew is B L U E C H E W.com. And ARN, uh, I've been meaning to ask you this for a while, but it came out officially on stage at Starcast during the Inside the Roads talk. Cody had to reveal the nickname for his brother that he still uses to this day. Now, Cody shortens it. He abbreviates the nickname to chicken, but apparently this is a nickname that you assigned to Dustin Rhodes years ago, back in WCW chicken Dick. So, uh, as our resident chicken Dick expert, what's up with that? How did Dustin Rhodes get the nickname chicken Dick? I cannot divulge that at this particular time, but can you divulge whether or not you are a chicken dick now that you've got bluechew.com. I can tell you this. I have a proposal for the scientists with bluechew. Okay. Okay. There is such a pronounced reaction by the one muscle that is just over the top and obnoxious. If it will affect that muscle that way, there's got to be They've got to be right on the verge of just one ingredient in a way of having that affect all your muscles when you take a blue chew. So now you look around and you've got a bunch of gassed up people walking the earth with the, with the boner. My God, it'd look like a, everywhere you look would look like a bodybuilding show. Little food for thought. Those of us that have a hard time getting abs or impossible to get abs, I'm going to put it on the scientists at Blue Chew to just add an ingredient and let's all get ripped. There you go. Check it out. Bluechew.com. Use that promo code ARN. And uh, next time you see Dustin Rhodes, ask him, hey, why did Arn call you Chicken Dick? See if you can get the story. Let's talk about Sting for a minute. When did you first hear about Sting possibly coming in? It feels like it's been a long time coming. You know, Bruce Pritchard has freestyled that. He was in conversation with Sting way back when Watts got bought out that perhaps he could have come over and what if it was his time back then, would he have been the guy to replace the ultimate warrior in that same spot? Would it have been Hogan and Sting at WrestleMania six? Of course we know that didn't happen, but Ric Flair made his way over the four horsemen made their way over lots of folks jumped ship from WCW or the NWA at the time to the WWF and those who didn't. Well, they made the jump after the buyout guys like Booker T guys like diamond Dallas page, but sting still marched to the beat of his own drummer. He was on the sidelines and then eventually took a flyer on impact wrestling and Dixie Carter and TNA wrestling. And he was there for a long, long time. And it felt like he was never going to make it to the WWF. And he finally does here. Did you try to bend his ear over the years and try to pitch it? Or was this the first time it comes up that you know of? What can you tell us about Sting and and coming into the company after all that time? Well, he and I didn't have that kind of relationship. We, you know, we were friends when we saw each other. I had nothing but respect for him uh, as a person and as a businessman. 
I wouldn't have felt comfortable calling and trying to coax him to come to work. I felt like he was loyal to WCW, and if he would have came with the buyout, it would have made that package a lot, obviously, a lot bigger and a lot more impressive because um, there were a lot of guys who chose not to come at that particular time and came at different times, like you said earlier. Um, Sting was pretty much in control of his own destiny for the entire time he was with WCW. He was the lead guy. He was the go-to guy. He was the figurehead. He was the, the face of the company. He pretty much called his own shots, and the guy made – several fortunes and he was able to have a different path other than coming to the WWE at that particular time. I think he would have just been a superstar in the room with a lot of other big superstars. When you got the undertaker and Kane and Steve Austin and rock and, and Shawn Michaels and triple H and all these guys standing around the room, you're not the guy. Now, I don't know if that concerned him, or if that was even an issue that he even thought about, or um, I don't know what the thought process was. I just know that you can wait too long and you could still have your moment in time. Would have been a lot bigger if when he did get his moment, which was the match with Triple H at WrestleMania. Would have been nice if he prevailed, but uh, it is what it is. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the rumor and innuendo sting has said for years that he never came to the WWE because he wasn't sure they would use him. Right. And he says he once heard that the rock asked Booker T who he used to be. And that made sting not want to come in when he actually does come in Meltzer would write for years, there was an easy answer to the trivia question of who was the biggest name in North American wrestling to never step foot in a WWE ring. The answer was sting and at the 2014 survivor series sting at the age of 55 took his name off the list for years. This seemed like something that would never happen. And after house contemporaries from WCW, whether it's Lex Luger or the Steiner brothers or the road warriors went to the WWF and had all, well, very little good to say. In fact, they all came back with negative stories. Sting was always guaranteed one of the top spots in WCW and top money. It really made no sense to go. And in 2001, when WCW folded, Sting was 42 at the time, and he figured his career was over. And things have come full circle. A decade earlier, Sting and Luger would talk about how Ric Flair was past 40 and should retire, and now he was the same age. He did little wrestling for several years. He'd made his money. He'd gotten heavily into religion. He was raising his kids. And he became, quote-unquote, real estate Steve at Gold's Gyms in Southern California, where most of the semi-celebrity clientele didn't even know he used to be a famous pro wrestler. Then TNA and Spike TV called, offering him roughly half a million a year per year, where he would work a very limited schedule, television, and pay-per-views when needed, and he could help jumpstart the promotion. As we mentioned, he was a big addition to the video game here. He'd been doing a lot of promotional appearances, and just as they had done with The Ultimate Warrior, when he was a big part of the video game, it led to him coming in. For years and years, a lot of people thought the dream match was going to be Sting and The Undertaker at WrestleMania, as you alluded to earlier, and wound up being a loss to Triple H. And I think most people assume that Triple H was going to lose that night since this was Sting's big WrestleMania moment. 
Maybe those folks weren't really paying attention all those years though. Anybody who was knew that triple H was going to win. So we'll talk about the WrestleMania match another time. I'm sure lots of controversy to go around. Uh, the result of this show is, uh, in the observer reader poll, he would ask thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle, 15.3% gave it a thumbs in the middle. 24.9% gave it a thumbs down. 59.8% gave it a thumbs up. Aaron, where would you land on this? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. What do you think though, for this one? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. I think it will be remembered by the fans to be a, uh, a nice moment in time. You know, I, I'm like everybody else that's got some experience in the business. You know, I think I'm a genius too sometimes, and I like to Monday morning quarterback something. The audience, especially the guys that grew up on Sting, to see him come down in this favorable light and do this good thing for a bunch of guys that he's not particularly close with, if at all, if he knows any of them at all, but he does the right thing for the company, saves the day, he's superhero for the day. I think the ones that grew up with Sting as their hero had something they can hang their hat on, a button on his career, and and, and a feel-good evening. If you had it to do over again, you said, you know, you think you're a genius and you rebooked the territory like a lot of guys. What do you think uh, would have been a better way to debut staying than here at Survivor Series against the Authority? Well, I think that's okay, but he needed he it, things needed to look a lot grimmer than what they looked, and have Sting come down and be be that Sting that I remember, and that Sting kicked everybody's ass. I know he kicked all four of ours plus JJ. It just didn't have enough for me. It didn't have enough explosion, pizzazz, whatever you want to call it, uh, excitement, over the top, sting splashing everybody, sting clotheslining all the guys out over the top, all that good stuff that you would want to see in about a one-minute segment of action. I just think it, uh, you know, the three minute stare down and all that, that's great. You want to see Sting come down and make a difference right away. And I think you have a dip. It didn't rumble to the point that it, that rumbling overrode the fact that you weren't getting any action right away. Let me ask you, you were famous for, um, agenting John Cena matches. Did you have this one? Do you, do you recall? No, sir. What, uh, who would have, is this triple H does his own thing or who would have agented this one? Yeah. Triple H would have been very, very heavy in the structure of this match. I would say just to the point of, he would probably have been the, the agent for it. So when this match is going down, are you in gorilla? I was watching somewhere. When, when sting comes back through the curtain, do you go over to Steve and give him a hug and welcome him to the dance or. Do you have any interaction with him? No, there would have been too many people there. Uh, you know, there would have been all the office folks and all that who would have been there to, to done that. I would have been way, way in the back. Um, I just know how things work. They would have, well, they would have welcomed them aboard and all that stuff and hoping that it was a good night so they could get another 
another couple or several nights of uh, of that type of exposure from him. So I wouldn't have been able to get near him. Well, you're going to be able to get near Arn next week. We're going back to our, our old school, baby. You guys have asked for it. You guys are going to get it. We're doing, of course, another ask Arn anything. All you've got to do is follow us on Twitter at the Arn show. Submit your questions right now at the Arn show. And, uh, we'll be back with you next week talking about any question you may have at all. We're also going to cover, uh, some of survivor series, 1988, which is Arn's first pay-per-view coming up. We'll talk about Arn's first Starcade, which would have been Starcade 85 coming up. We'll also talk about coming back to WCW in December of 89 and why he left the WWF. And of course, you know, eventually we're going to cover Starcade 89, which is his first pay-per-view back with WCW. But next week, man, it's all up to you. What do you want to know? What do you want to ask Arn? Go to Twitter right now. Follow us at the Arn show, and you'll see us asking for questions right at the top fire away and tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday right here at Westwood one for Arn. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.